I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Israel Green, founder of Green Consulting Group, a boutique consulting firm committed to helping companies transform their company culture. Our conversation today is being recorded by Zoom. Israel Green is the founder of Green Consulting Group. A highly sought-after speaker, trainer, and coach, he is extremely passionate about helping leaders transform their company culture by fostering a diverse landscape, creating equitable opportunities, and promoting inclusion so they can become the organization they've always imagined. He's been listed as one of the top 10 trending DE&I training experts by All-American Entertainment. In addition to being the founder of Green Consulting Group, He is also a senior consultant with Envisioning Equity and a contributing member to A World Without Suicide. Israel recently discovered that he was adopted and has been on a journey unearthing his personal history, finding and becoming acquainted with his biological family. Israel, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you for having me. This is a broad question. I appreciate that. But just as it were to set the stage for our conversation, what is DEI? And why do we need to be paying attention to it? Yeah, so it's it's become very important over the past you know few years with everything that's going on um, in the environment. But DEI as a whole is what we would kind of call a, a three legged stool, if you will, and it stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And diversity or base is basically all of the characteristics about an individual that makes that one person unique. Um, So if you think of all those features or qualities of that person, and these can be both seen and unseen. So the easier identifiers are things such as race, gender, age, and then it gets into more of the unseen pieces such as religion, sexual orientation, maybe socioeconomic status. You've got neurodiversity, abilities and disabilities, and so on and so forth. And then you take the second leg of the stool, which is equity. And this is really the the policies and the practices, and is it's a way in which we create fair access and opportunities and advancement for all those differences that I just named above. Um, and this is kind of done so that the playing field can be made level, if you will. Um, and then you've got the third leg of the stool, which is inclusion. And this is about the actions and the organizations that take place um, to make people feel like they are valued, they are respected, they're heard, and they are seen. And it's been said that diversity is about counting the people and inclusion is about insisting that the people count. So when you think about the three-legged stool analogy and on top of that three-legged stool, there has to be a seat, obviously. This is what I would add to it and call the belonging piece of it. And it's that place of comfort where you kind of plop down. And at the end of the day, it's how does that person feel? And that's the belonging component that is sometimes missed in the DEI piece of things. The second part of that question is why it's why is it important now? Um, we've seen a lot of injustices bubble up to the surface in society. With that has come an awakening of what it means for those diverse candidates that are giving so much of themselves to an organization. Outside of just that piece of it, there's tons of benefits why an organization should or shouldn't be doing this thing. And it's everything from productivity for a team, profitability of diverse teams with leadership, uh, what it means for creating opportunities, innovation. But outside of all of that, as individuals and as a company, I believe that we've got a responsibility. We are social stewards, if you will. And there's corporate stewardship as well. And what I mean by that is we have this responsibility to create um, resources and sustainable assets and policies that are conserving the world for the next generation that's coming after us. And for a company in the community to be gaining profits off of those individuals, it's it's important that they serve um, and create and contribute to that. So that's one of the reasons why diversity and inclusion is extremely important. Why do organizations come to you? 
and ask for your support and assistance with a topic like this. Clearly, there's a statement underlying this question, which is geared towards a degree of skepticism, either on the part of organizations or their individuals, or maybe community at large about the goodwill or the sincerity of an organization. So, you know, I acknowledge that going in with this question, but why do companies come to you and and say, Israel, please help us professionally with this work? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's one of the questions that I ask when we get on the call with the client is, you know, what brings us to this point? Why are we chatting today? And it's usually either an environmental influencer. So past few years, you've got George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Fernando Castile, Ahmaud Arbery, the, the list goes on. And they, their response is, you know what, it's the right thing to do. So they believe they've got a social responsibility. They're identifying that because there's people that work for them that look like Breonna Taylor. There's people that work like them that look like George Floyd. And they understand that these people are hurting. And it's like, hey, how can, how can we help? The challenge with that is so many organizations are doing it more so to check a box or create a hashtag movement for their company to say, hey, we did something. And it moves from the right thing to do to check in a box. And that is about having a course. Like, okay, hey, let's do an unconscious bias training. And then they think that they're done with this. And there's so much more to it than that. One of the big things that we discovered is this is so complex. Companies don't know where to start. And there's so many nuances to this. And, you know, is it, how do we sustain it? Is it, do we do stuff outside of the organization? How much money do we give to it? And they don't even know what to measure, where to begin, where the training goes, what statements to make, what's political, what's not. So we help them really just kind of distill all of that down. And we take that complex process of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and we make the implementation of it simple for them. What have been some of your experiences with clients, um, perhaps those that have been well-meaning and they sincerely want to try to implement something, but they keep coming up against hurdles? And I'm curious about what are their own hurdles and maybe some of your experiences with those companies that came really because they wanted to burnish their brand or check the box. And maybe they've had a course correction themselves along that journey where they've realized that this is actually not only the right thing to do, but just a good thing to do as well. Um, you know what? It's been hit and miss, more hits than misses, you know, thankfully for me as I, I do the work. And anytime you're talking about race, equity, diversity, all of these things, there are two things that happen. Defenses rise and emotions start to start to come out to the forefront and the heartbeat starts to beat very fast and people steer clear of it. So what we're finding is organizations that once we were able to get in and there and actually engage with them, we're finding that there are these light bulb moments that are just beautiful because it creates that, that piece of understanding that drives belonging for that, that individual that is sitting next to them. Um, a few of the, the big challenges that organizations are really facing, they don't usually have a budget that they're willing to give to this because they don't know how to create a business plan for it. Um, What is the impact to the business if we don't do this? What's at stake? And they don't know how to quantify that. So that's a a huge one. So the budget piece of it, you've got cultural um, challenges where culture is basically, we've always operated this way. We're going to continue to operate this way. So you've got those cultural barriers. Um, The other piece is that this is such a nebulous topic people don't know what to measure or how to measure it. So whenever other priorities pop up, we find that organizations will put this by the wayside because there's nothing tied to the business of it. Meaning how does it make us money, save us money, increase efficiency, um, add to our profits or help in society. So they end up just saying, okay, you know what? We don't need that right now. Go focus on COVID mandate go figure out how to get people back into the office. So next thing you know, all the work that's been done building up to this has now just taken a back seat, unfortunately. Summertime, summertime, love's in its prime. Summertime, summertime, everything's just fine. But up and came 
I would imagine that in your work, you talk to companies about their values mm-hmm. and how the work you do around DEI is very much an exercise in aligning stated values with these social, but also organizational principles. I'm curious about what kind of conversation you have with organizations about values alignment. And where I want to take that question is what that actually means when you're confronting a room of employees or managers or leaders wrestling with not only organizational values, but personal values as well. Yep. It, you know, great point kind of going back to my social stewards and corporate stewardship piece. We operate off of a framework that we put together. And it all starts with four categories and one is foundation and the, under the foundation hood, if you will, is about driving the strategy. And that's about the vision, the leadership and the structure of how this is going to be built out. So we're very specific in trying to tie it back to what they do, how they do it and who they do it for, who they're serving and making sure that it's aligned and embedded because at that point it becomes systemic as opposed to just a, a tactical piece of this thing that we're going to put off to the side. Um, So we're very clear in helping them identify and build that business case, tying it back to that and that they understand, okay, hey, this is our mission. This is our vision. Here are the benefits of having a DE&I strategy as it relates to that. And here's how we tie it back together. And, you know, it's, it's so funny because all organizations, they will usually say, you know what? We want to be the best company that does XYZ in the world. We want to be world premier in this. If you look at that, you can always tie the benefits back to those things because it's like, okay, well, how do you become the best in the world if you're not accounting for all the people that you're servicing? You know, how are you hearing those voices? Who were those voices coming from? And that's the kind of the, the great part of what we do is we, I, I'm in a very special place because I get to be the voice for those that can't be heard, you know, and, and I, you know, whether it's in an audience of five leaders for one organization or at a conference of 500 leaders, you know, across a series of organizations, that's a pretty special thing and a pretty special, and I call it a burden, but a gift as well that I get to carry and give back. Yeah. I guess it never hit you. Our conversation takes two. It's interesting you use that, those words, gift and burden, because we can talk conceptually about organizational culture, values, these other conceptual elements. But at the end of the day, you're standing in front of a room of people, or you're you know, in, a, in a room with people, and we're all individuals, and we're all bringing you know, our gifts and our burdens. I'm curious about what are these encounters like? You know, I'm trying to you know, envisage what happens? I mean, so at a, at a policy level, we can talk about policy like changing HR practices and 
benefit structures and the narrative of our marketing materials. I mean, that's all great. But when you get in a room with people and you start saying, let's do the work here, what happens? So it can go a couple of different ways. And I laugh as you say that because, of course, the worst things come to mind. And I'll give you an example. There was a leadership group that I was facilitating a workshop for. And it was supposed to be for 90 minutes. It was going well. And these are leaders at Fortune 100 companies. And a guy interrupts me. And I, and I love having the dialogue back and forth. So I, I make sure that they say, I say, hey, you know what? I, I want you to engage with me. Um, this is a learning process. And I want them to feel comfortable to be able to speak their mind. And this guy raises his hand. And I'm like, yes. You know, and he's like, so... I'm curious, you know, it seems like we're always talking about, when we talk about diversity, it's always about black people. Why is that? And I'm like, okay, you know, I, I equate what we do to kind of being a doctor in an emergency room. So when someone comes to us and say that they've been in a car accident, we have to determine which portion of their body is bleeding the most, triage that portion, and then we move to the, the less vital pieces of their body and address those things. So depending on what's happening in the environment, that's what we're triaging at that given point. So over the past two or three years, it's been murders at the hands of police officers and in the community. So that's why it's about race at this point. And it's like, well, all this is Marxist. And I'm like, okay, I I see this is what we're going to be doing today. (laughs) So I'm, you know, I'm like, you know, share more with me. Why, why do you think that? Because I, once again, the goal is to get them to engage, not attack them, not avoid them, not try to convince them of anything, but simply to get them to rethink how might this be possible? And that takes a lot of work sometimes to move that needle of cultural competence of engaging just enough to get them to understand something different. He continues to interrupt me. And it got to a point where I, I don't know if he was trying to trigger me for a reaction and I wasn't giving it to him, but he proceeded to say, this is horrible. Um, this is always about race. And then he turned it to, well, what do you think about the situation in Ferguson? You know, what about the officers there? And I'm like, you know, I said, with all due respect, this is a conversation that is about, um, I can't remember what the specific title of the workshop was, but I try to steer it back to that. And he then came at me again and was like, well, I'm disappointed that you won't address this, that you won't talk about this with me. And at that point, I was very firm because at that point, he's becoming disruptive to everyone else that is on this call. And I, I get encounters like that where people will want to challenge you. And there's what we call these relationship stems. People can either choose to attack, avoid, or engage. And each one takes us to a different outcome. And, you know, it's if we can usually talk about the engagement piece, um, if we attack, that basically creates enemies, you know, because at that point, one person is going to try to get the other person. And it's like, okay, hey, you just attack me. I'm going to come back at you. If we avoid it, that creates strangers because we never able to understand what the person is going through. But if we engage, it, it becomes something different. With the engagement piece of it, we engage, it creates curiosity. Curiosity creates questions. Questions creates answers. Answers create knowledge. And at that point, we've got this dialogue back and forth. And that's really what moves that needle of cultural competence from the left to the right. And you think about engaging. Oftentimes, the things that are left unsaid are more important than the things that are said. So we have to have that dialogue back and forth. I really want to hear about where that engagement has yielded for you the gift, the epiphany, where you can see this cultural flourishing come to mm-hmm. life in front of you and because of, because of the work you're doing? Yeah, there's one situation in particular where we were doing the history of systemic racism. And we talked about what this looks like, what the pillars are of a caste system, what has to be at play. And people were sharing their experiences with me. And it was kind of a, a listening session, if you will. And one young lady started to share her experience about she's Latin and she's married to a white man. And she's like, you know what? I'm very blessed to be married to a white man. I'm I'm very lucky. And I'm like, okay, what makes you say that versus, you know, someone of another ethnicity or race? And she says, because A, he's 
wealthy, so we don't have to worry about you know money. And the other piece is the bad side of that. I don't have to worry about that, but I do have to worry about how I get to show up at home. And I'm like, what do you mean by that? And she's like, well, I can't display my full culture because his friends are all white and he's worried about what his friends might think if I put out images or pictures or play music. And, and I said, so help me understand this. Basically you can't embrace your culture at home where you should be a hundred percent comfortable. And I said, do you mind if we explore this a little bit more? Um, she was open to exploring it. And I said, so team that's on the call, if she's experiencing this at home from an inclusion perspective, and this is where she is most comfortable and spends the majority of her time, what do you think is taking place when she comes into work and how must she feel in that environment? And I could see the look on the faces of the participants and it shifted in that moment to where they're like, I didn't think about that. So now what I'm getting from her, she emailed me and she's like, you know what? People are embracing me more at work and they're asking about my culture and that's the inclusion. And she's loving that because now she gets to share and bring her, her whole entire self to the office that she wasn't able to do before. So that's one of the, the great moments that I've had with this. a little bit externally to you. We've been talking about the people you work with in terms of organizations and, and also individuals. But this feels like a really heavy load to have to carry. You mentioned um, a litany of names that are you know, in the news, but also in, in our social discourse around the inequities of American society. And that's really just the tip of the iceberg, which is tragic. So how do you carry this burden, as you say, into a professional world. It's one thing to carry the tragedy of American racism in a personal life, but this is your business, possibly your vocation. I don't know. What is the motivation for you to do this work? And what are the emotional and psychological implications of doing this work for you? Wow. That, that's a, a great question. And I pause as I, I think through this the it's it's sometimes it is difficult and i don't think people choose to do this if they if there's not some level of it that they enjoy but once again going back to social responsibility i believe that i have a gift of something i, I don't know exactly what it is <laughs> but i've got this gift and i've been blessed to be able to have an audience and i just feel that once you're in a situation where you can give back, you have a responsibility to do so. And there is just so many voices that can't be heard. And I get to be the voice for them. You know, so whether it's whispering softly or screaming at the top of my lungs, I do that through this work. Um, and it, it does get heavy, you know, but the, the thing is to keep it in perspective and make sure that I acknowledge when I do have those wins and I call them fuel up moments where you get tired and you're like, you know what? I, I am done. I can't do this anymore. I'm hitting a wall. To be aware of those 
fuel up moments so that when they happen, it's like, you know what? Thank you, God. Thank you, universe, whatever it, it might be that gives you just enough juice to get you to that next destination. And I'm very, I try to be very cognizant of those moments, whether it's the email that comes across when I'm down, um, whether it's the helping someone and, and seeing them going out and doing the same work. Um, and that's why I try to be equally as given of my time to people, um, because I think that's one of the, the, the biggest investments. I, I think back to Hamilton, you know, you write like you're running out of time. Um, he was on a mission and then, you know, I'm on a mission and it's to reach as many people as possible to, to share this, but also taking time for that mental break that if I need it, I've got people that I can call and I've given them what these checkpoints are for me. Like, you know, if you see me doing these things, understand that I'm probably experiencing something. And even though I might not say it, I need help, you know? So they know what those points are to check in on me and say, Hey, is, you know, how's it going? Um, you, you've kind of gone quiet on me. And, and I do go, I go through these cycles. It's ebb, it ebbs and flows, but having good people around me that I can check in and that are open to that, know the work that I do and the, the weight that comes with that. So those are usually kind of how I balance it. I segued us somewhere a little more closely to you as an individual. So I'm going to damn take- you, Stuart, damn you. <laughs> Well, let, let's let's just jump in. You know, a part of your recent story is around um, the discovery of being adopted. Um, before we jump to that and how that unfolded, there's an intrinsic genetic part of who we are and how we show up in the world through our lives. But there's also that part of us that is influenced by the world around us and our experiences. So I'm always curious what people's childhoods were like. Uh, because I, I think that's always fertile ground for understanding how our lives have turned out the way they have. So what was your childhood like? My childhood was very interesting. Um, um, so I was abandoned at birth and went through the foster system for several years um, and then finally adopted. And shortly after being adopted, uh, a few years later, my mom ends up with cancer and ends up passing away. And, you know, so it was me, my brother, my dad. So I honestly, I don't have a lot of memories that to go back to. And I don't know if that makes sense or not, but, and I, I am a hundred percent sure that I definitely need therapy. <laughs> um, but it's, it was a rough childhood because I grew up banging my head up against the wall and discovering, Hey, you know what? That hurts. You know, don't do that. Um, and that's, that's impacted where I am today and how I show up either show up in relationships because of those fractured relationships growing up. Um, you know, there was some abuse earlier on in my, in my childhood and that has caused me to, that's really caused me to run. And I always ask, you know, employees of mine, you know, whenever they're moving on or moving to something greater. When they ask for my input, I always ask, are you running from something? Or are you running to something? And for me, it's a combination of both. So people are like, okay, my God, you're moving so fast. Well, you know, slow down. And it's like, I, I can't slow down. At nighttime, my mind is racing about where I need to be, how I'm going to get there, who's going to be there, what's going to happen when I get there, going through all of these things. And it's heavily influenced by my running to something to get away from, you know, and something better um, to be a voice. And maybe that's where the voice piece comes from because I didn't have a voice for me, you know? So going through that piece and then finally finding, running to my, the destination, finding my birth family. And I searched for years. I didn't even know that I was adopted until my mom is on her deathbed and my brother and I are having a, a fight. And he says, Hey, you know, that's why you're adopted. So then I started doing some digging just for clarity, and I, I do want you to continue this story. You mentioned that you were um, part of the foster care system, that you were adopted. But what age was that? Were, were you not aware at that time? No. Being, okay. Um, so at that time, I was, I think by the time the adoption went through, I was almost five years old. Okay. Yeah. I went through a couple of different homes. I was renamed Sherman. Um, I, somehow I got the name Baby Boy Christopher Smith 
when I was born, which I discovered later on, and then Sherman. And then when my family finally got me, they nicknamed me Dobe. And, and it's like, Jesus, no wonder I, I'm having this identity crisis here. I've been named about eight times. And, um, you know, at one point they're calling the dog's name and I'm showing up they're like, okay, hey, you know, it's my sandwich there. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I didn't have an awareness of that. And I didn't even know what it meant to be adopted. But I remember certain situations that presented themselves. Like one of my aunts, she says to me, boy, what nationality are you? And I, I'm like, okay, I can't. I can't even pronounce that word. You know, I giggled because it was a funny word. And then I went and go played and played in some dirt somewhere, you know. Um, but then as I got older, I'm like, okay, why would she say something so mean to me as a child? You know, and that that's one of the the things that I remember. Um, so finding the, the birth family um, later on in my life, about 25 years after I found out that I was adopted. So I was in my 30s when I discovered my birth family. One man's trash is another man's baggage Slow you down, I ain't going nowhere Space suit on, can't breathe this air TNT going off in here Ain't we up there? Cause you always wanna touch me My thorns will leave you bleeding That's why I'm always leaving Cause you always wanna touch me My phones will leave you bleeding That's why I'm always leaving Believe me Before you embark on finding this, you know, this, this quest to find your biological family, what was happening in that moment when all the pieces clicked together? This, this realization, this moment when you understood, oh, I am adopted. For me, it's, it was about not feeling a sense of, you know, as I talk through this now, and it's like, Jesus, not feeling a sense of belonging, you know, and, and that's uh, not to play on what this is about, but that was there for me. And, you know, it just so happened that I happened to resemble my dad, you know, from a physical characteristic standpoint. And you, whenever you're searching for, you know, your birth family, you're searching for usually three main reasons. Um, one is you want to find out what your medical history is so that you can be aware of that. The other is you want to find someone that resembles you. That's not a coincidence. You know, who do I look like? Who, what traits do I take on? And then the third piece is you want to understand the why. What was, what was so bad at that time? What was wrong? More importantly, what was wrong with me that you didn't want me, that you would abandon me? And you want to be able to ask this, look at the person in the eye and ask those questions of why did you not want me? Tell me, you know, I, I'm demanding answers here. So that's the piece that I was always chasing and, and trying to figure out and really just finding a place where I belonged and was able to sit down on that stool and be comfortable with these answers. invite you then to share a little about that journey of searching and then discovering the biological family and the um you know the consequences of yep. not just searching but finding yeah so it's it's such a, a moving piece it's a roller coaster when you start to search 
Um, and you got to have all these records unsealed, both from the adoption, both from the um, when they give you up. And I went through years trying to get these records unsealed. And, you know, I go back to these fuel up moments where I would run into these roadblocks. No one had answers. And I got a hold of this woman. Her name was Teresa at this courthouse. And I had reached out to her and I ended up sending in some documentation. And you're supposed to pay and they are supposed to search for a year. I didn't have the money at the time because I wasn't working and I sent the documentation in. So six months later, I get this, these records back and it's a very thick packet of, Hey, here are records. Also here is a psychological profile for what you may be experiencing. If these three worlds collide, meaning yours as the adoptee, your birth parents and the adoptive parents understand this could create chaos if things go awry and we want you to be aware of this. And on this checklist, it says, Hey, we found the birth family. Here's their information. B we cannot find them. C we found them and they don't want to be contacted or D they're deceased. So mine came back. They said they couldn't find them. So I'm like, Oh man, you know, this is horrible. And I call up Teresa. I'm like, Teresa, I don't know if you remember me or not, but I sent this information and I didn't have the money to pay. And I called her because they did not search for an entire year. It was about six or eight months or something around there. She's like, um, you know, no worries. She's like, yes, I remember you. And she's like speaking to you, not as a clerk of the court, but from one adoptive person to another, I put your records through and process them. And I'm like, okay, what does that mean? So this is the closest I've ever been. And that's that fuel up moment where it's like, you know what, you're on the right path. Keep going. So she's like, you have to have another set of documents unsealed at this point. And she's like, is, or she called me Israel. And she's like, at this point, I will tell you that the likelihood of you getting those records unsealed is very, very 99% that you won't get them unsealed. She's like, I've been a clerk of the court and my records are still sealed and it's been 21 years. And I'm like, okay. She's like, so don't get your hopes up. So I'm like, okay. Um, so searching, I had a search angel um, that contributed their time to help me find what I was looking for. But there's identifiers on this original set of documentation that says, okay, hey, here is the, um, the woman's name. So I th- the first set of documents that I had was the adoption. And I'm calling back. I'm like, hey, I need the birth records of this woman. I need this information. And this was about a year and a half later. And I keep calling the courts. I get this woman that answers. And I said, look, I said, I'm searching for these documents. And she's like, yep, Mr. Green, we've got those set and ready to go out this week. And I'm like, ma'am, I don't think you understand what I'm asking you. <laughs> I said, I need the records for the birth family for, and her name is Betty Jean Smith. And she's like, um, yep, those are set to go out. And I'm like, I'm sorry, ma'am. I still don't think you understand what I'm asking you because it had been so long in this search over literally about 20 years. I said, I'm sorry, these are for the birth records. And she started cracking up laughing. And she's like, I experience this all the time. She's like, you'll receive them by the end of the week. So I waited patiently and I get this other set of documentation. It's like, wow, I had social security numbers. I had addresses. I had activities, the home that they lived in, all of this stuff. And in searching, one of the things that jumped out at me, going back to that sense of belonging of, you know, who, who, who am I? Who do I look like? And there was a piece that the name said Betty Jean Smith. And Stuart, you'll crack up at this. But when I read off her name, I'm like, Betty Jean, Betty Jean. And I, I kept saying it like in this country accent. And I'm like, this is a white woman. And I'm like, how dare her? And I was so angry because I thought that she stripped me of my identity of what I thought. You know, and then as I read on down through, it's like, you know, she's African-American and Native American. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm good then, you know. Um, but yeah, that was just one of the, the funny moments of it. But I found the family, fast forward, making some phone calls and finding my brother, first and foremost. And at first I thought the, the birth mother was living. Turns out she had passed away about eight months prior to my finding them. So I missed that opportunity to ask that difficult question of like, why did you do this? So there's still a void there, but in meeting them, they, they didn't know about me and I show up and 
knocking on this door pretty much, you know, it didn't quite go that way, but they embraced me in a way that I could never imagine. Um, you know, we all have questions. Now we get together for, you know, the ho- Christmas holidays and my experiences as, as a child, like I don't really celebrate Christmas. I don't put up lights or, you know, because I have had bad experiences as a child. So I disassociate from that piece of it. And that impacts how we show up today to your point in your earlier question. But yeah. I think you mentioned earlier your adoptive father and brother. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about your adoptive family, how they responded to this discovery of yours. Yeah. So when I first searched, my dad was was ill. Um, and I, or as I got closer to finding them. So I never told my dad that I searched. I never told him that I found them. And nor did I tell my brother at the time. And my dad ended up passing away. And as you know, I was preparing his funeral arrangements and things of that nature. My brother comes to the viewing, my birth brother, biological brother, to support me um, with one of my nieces. And that was his first introduction to that side of the family. So they didn't even know. And he shows up and people say that we look alike. So it's interesting because people were coming up to him and like, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. Oh, I'm so sorry. And he's like, no, I'm not, I'm not Israel. They're like, what? And they're like, wow, you look just like him. You know, they, he went on into um, the building and then people came up to me like, you know, who's that guy? And I'm like, who do you think he is? You know, my sister-in-law um, actually She's like, who's that guy? And I'm like, that's, I said, who do you think he is? And she's like, he looks like you. And I said, that's my brother. And she's like, oh, she's like, so she runs over to just ask tons of questions. Um, I did tell my mom's side that I searched uh, because just out of respect for them. And we had lost touch with my mom's side of the family after everything for probably about 10 to 15 years. Um, And I still had a level of respect for my, my aunts, my uncles and I did tell my aunt that I was searching and to make sure that she was okay with it. And she's like, you know, as long as you don't get hurt, but I didn't see a need for telling my dad in that state. Um, yeah, I just didn't, didn't find a need for it at that point in time, but now they're aware. Um, and the whole thing was, you know, as long as you don't get hurt, we are okay with you searching. But it was that the hurt portion was when I got confirmation that she was deceased and I wasn't able to knock on her door, look her in the eye and interact with her. say 
how are you handling that hole? Um, because as you've made clear, that is never going to be a question that you are ever going to be able to ask. So you will always be wrestling with the question. Earlier, you talked about how curiosity can lead to good questions, can then lead to answers and knowledge. Yeah. And that was in a DEI context, but now you've become stymied and that there is no real solution to this. How are you reconciling yourself to that situation? Stuart, if I'm being fully transparent, I don't know that I fully have or am, to be honest with you. One of the acti- one of the things that I did when I met them for the first time is that night after spending the day with my brother and my sister and meeting a family friend that we thought might have some answers, I went back and I wrote a letter to Betty. It basically was me introducing myself. And I said, hey, you might know me as baby boy Christopher Smith. And I said, I'm Israel Green. This is who I am. I'm your son. And I went through this list of questions on paper and I addressed it like it was a letter and I signed it, you know, baby boy, Christopher Smith. And what I wanted to do was try to find a way to let go of those questions that I still carry with me, you know, the, the inadequacies of what I felt, even though it, it wasn't anything about me, but you still carry those things with you and on your shoulder as a burden once again. So I wrote this letter and we went to the cemetery and I just folded it up and shoved it into the ground as far as I could close to um, where she's buried. And that was my way of trying to let go. Um, and it was like, what was so bad about me? Why didn't you want me? What was going on? All of these questions. And as I did that, that was my way of trying to let it go a little bit. Another piece that I've done is I've started writing a book that is on the shelf that I, it's been difficult to process and it's called Forgotten Sons, 40 Lessons for 40 Years is the working title, but it's about all the things that I wish I had learned that I'm able to now share with other young men who might not be in the the best of situations growing up. Here are the life lessons. Here's a compass, if you will, on how to get to those destinations. How do you prepare yourself in business? How do you dress, you know, for success? How do you become Uh, And it's mainly for those individuals who, even though my dad was bringing us up, we were still out in the streets, ripping and running the streets at 10 or 14 years old. And, you know, they say God watches over children and God watches over fools. And, you know, luckily I was blessed then to be a child and now I'm just a fool, I guess. And I'm trying to give some of what I learned back to those young men to help them avoid some of the pitfalls that I made. I don't want to overstretch this connection. So I I say that going in. Earlier, you talked about the role of belonging in the diversity, equity, and inclusion field and the work that you do. And you also mentioned that word in the really intimate, personal sense of you thinking about considering and then searching for your biological family. And so I just wanted to ask you if having experienced all that you have through your life, and and especially most recently, if you found that the work you do has shifted or been informed in some way, how you do the work, the content of your work is different now. And maybe if the work itself has, has informed how you think about your own life too. So I'm wondering how you're seeing some of the connections between these experiences and vocation? Yeah, I think for me, the biggest connection is making sure that people understand the power in sharing their story and telling it. You know, just like I mentioned, the young lady that shared her story about being at home and people having those revelations when they're sitting on a call with her and what that does for their experience with her thereafter. There is so much power in us being able to share stories, and that's what creates connection. So I embed that a lot. And before, Stuart, I would steer clear of this topic and still not entirely comfortable sharing it, but I it's difficult for me to not make my own, you know, drink my own champagne, so to speak, or eat my own dog food. Um, but I share that because people have been through things similar and they sometimes aren't showing up because they think it's something to be ashamed of. And that's what I thought for the longest time is 
I'm something to be ashamed of. What I've experienced is something to be ashamed of. And it's like, you know what? We all have experiences. That's what makes you so beautiful and so unique. And I need you to share this story because there's someone in here that may need to hear it right now, right in that moment. Um, so I encourage a lot more of that. So I think that's been one way that it's influenced me. Um, the other way is, is how I show up in situations. I am never going to be the, the smartest person in the room or the sharpest tool in the shed. Uh, but what I bring to the table is this endurance that I can, a promise that I can guarantee you that I will outrun you any given day of the week and twice on Sunday. And that's how I'm going to survive because of what I've been through. Um, and my sense of having to accomplish something and achieve something to whether it's proving to myself that yes, I am worthy because I'm always striving to achieve this um, and not quitting. And that goes from the search of my birth family to anything that I'm trying to accomplish in life. My guest today has been Israel Green, founder of Green Consulting Group, a boutique consulting firm committed to helping companies transform their company culture. Israel, thanks so much for being on the show today. I've really enjoyed chatting with you and I'm privileged that you shared your story. Thank you. Stuart, thank you for having me. I did like your reference to, uh, you know, drink your own champagne or eat your own dog food. We've got a spectrum right there. <laughs> you know what? I'm, my taste is a little bit more refined than dog food. So yeah. I'm going to drink my own champagne. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh. Um, is your plant back there dying? <laughs> no, it's uh, it's a bamboo plant. Uh, I was like, okay, she's like, she might need a little bit of love. <laughs> That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at Lives Radio Show. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. Music